Amen. Yeah, I love, one of the things I love about our worship team and Jeff is the way he integrates theology with the songs because, you know, that's what worship music is. It's, a, it's reinforcing the truths of Scripture, and uh, he's exactly right. The Holy Spirit is God. He is omnipresent. We never have to invite him to come, but what we mean by that, like when we pray, maybe, maybe you've heard people praying and you're saying, Holy Spirit, we, we want you to come and move among us, stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with that. We just have to understand what we mean by that. What we mean is, Spirit, we want you to manifest yourself in a powerful way. You want to, to speak to our hearts, to encourage, to convict, and that type of thing. And hopefully that's the way you feel every time you come uh, to a gathering here at Plum Creek Chapel. The Word of God is central to all that we do, and uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit really does speak right to your heart, right where He needs to. You know, isn't it amazing how you can have a hundred people in a worship service and every one of them can get something different that they needed through the Spirit of God out of it, you know? And I, I can't tell you how many times through 32 years of ministry, people will come up to me after a service uh, from time to time and they'll say, oh man, that message was great. You know, your point about blah, 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 blah was just so powerful to me. And I'm thinking, that was, that was like the, the least significant point of the sermon. That was like a footnote. It wasn't even in the notes. And yet, that's what the Lord gave, you know, took them. So uh, it's, not, it's nice to know that when we sing and when we pray, we don't have an agenda. We try not to anyway, right? We're just letting the Spirit of God use the Word of God, which is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we are in the midst of our journey through the book of Acts, and I'm really having a great time. I don't know about anybody else, but I'm really enjoying just reviewing the blow-by-blow blow account of what the Lord did in the early church and how uh, the Spirit of God led and the church expanded and people came to faith. And, you know, last week we, we looked at the experience of uh, Peter and John being persecuted in chapters 4 and 5, and we drew some principles from Scripture on how to relate to suffering and, and persecution. And, you know, this week we're continuing our journey uh, through the early days of the church, and we come to chapters 6 and 7. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, everybody handles portions of Scripture a little bit differently in terms of how they break it up. And to me, historical literature like Acts lends itself more to kind of outlining it in terms of sections and segments that kind of come together rather than looking at every verb and every noun and stopping, you know, every three words with a whole sermon. I mean, it'd take you 10 years to get through a book the size of Acts. So this morning, we're going to take two more chapters together, but I always like to at least review and highlight some of the events that happen, even though we're not necessarily going to draw some principles from those events. Uh, but to set the stage for our focal passage today, you know, as I was thinking about it, it occurs to me that, that people are people everywhere, right? There is a commonality to human nature. Uh, I mean, sure, every region has its unique characteristics. I mean, I, having traveled as much as I have through the years, I can spot typically someone what state they're from just from their accent a lot of times you know South Carolinians have an accent even I can distinguish that from Georgia obviously New York Boston Texas um, so th there's there's certainly regional uniqueness but deep down in our heart people are people the basic spiritual and, and psychological traits that characterize human beings are the same for all of us and that hasn't changed and as we read the account of the early church, we see how the unbelieving Jewish leaders responded to this advancement of the gospel. And we recognize, you know what, the fact is that could have been any of us. 
that we all have this same unique uh, human nature. It's a fallen human nature that needs to believe the gospel in order to be redeemed, to be re regenerated, to be saved. And unbelief is just as widespread today as it was then. And so as I was reading through Acts 6 and 7, especially chapter 7 with Peter, uh, Stephen's famous lengthy sermon, uh, longest sermon in the book of Acts, by the way, chapter 7, uh, I thought, what could possibly make these Jews reject Christ the way they did? I mean, of all people who should have embraced the good news, you would think it would have been the Jewish people, especially the leaders. It should have been easiest for them to believe. I mean, they had the testimony of the prophets. They had the description of the Messiah to come. They should have known everything about him, and yet... As we're going to see in a moment, they very steadfastly refused to believe the gospel. And so that sort of brought up a question, why do so many people refuse to believe the gospel? Because again, people are people and the same thing is happening today. I mean, eternal life is a free gift. And there's nothing more valuable than eternal life. I mean, we tend to think through the lens of temporality and you know, values that, that earthly things have. But when you get right down to it, there's nothing greater than our eternal destiny. And either you're going to spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell because you didn't receive the free gift paid for by the blood of Christ, or you're going to receive that free gift, have that issue settled once for all, and spend eternity uh, in heaven. So all you have to do to accept his payment on your behalf is trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. It's a free gift. So why do so many people reject it? Uh, I actually uh, thought about this in much greater detail uh, a couple of years ago, and it became uh, a book called The Top Ten Reasons People, or I forget what it was. Now, Top Ten Reasons, <laughs> can't remember my own title, Top Ten Reasons People Go to Hell and the One Reason No One Ever Has to. And basically, I kind of came up with 10 common reasons that I've just experienced and witnessed through the years of ministry that cause people to reject the gospel and things like pride and self-sufficiency, those kinds of things. Um, but essentially, it, as we look at Acts 6 and 7, we're sort of asking the same question, but particularly focusing on these Jewish leaders. So let's take a moment and just kind of look at some of the context first. And then I want to key in on a focal passage here in just a moment. So we're in Acts chapter 6, if you want to uh, follow along. And I won't put every verse up. And in fact, we're not even going to read every verse because it's such a lengthy passage. But the first thing we see is the church continues to grow. So remember, chapter 4 and 5, we see the persecution. Well, let's, let's just review it all. So the church begins in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people saved. The end of chapter 2, we see a picture of what the early church looked like as they began to meet regularly. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3, uh, we see the healing of the lame man by the beautiful gate and how that led to more revival and more people coming to faith. Then chapter 4 and 5, as the church is growing, the early unbelieving Jewish leaders begin to get a little antsy and they start to push back. And Rome is sort of complicit in that as well, the Roman government. And you see Peter and John arrested twice. And yet they steadfastly 
uh, say we're going to obey God, not man, and we're going to continue to preach the gospel. And that brings us to chapter 6. And Luke, the historian here who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying. So, again, he's giving us one of these progress reports and telling us, hey, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The gospel is going forth. People are hearing the gospel and they're believing the gospel. And that's how you become a Christian. And so we see the growth and expansion of the church. And then he goes on to say, uh, as the church was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here we see one of the earliest examples of church politics and church you know, problems. And again, people are people everywhere. 2,000 years later, we have a lot more manifestations of sin and degenerative behavior and so forth because sin gets worse and worse. But it should not surprise us when churches who's made up of believers who still have that fleshly nature sometimes have struggles and have disagreements. And that was the case here. So then the 12, so we're still early on in the days of the church when the 12 apostles, including Matthias, who was picked in chapter 1, are kind of leading the way. And they said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose. And then it lists the, seven, the first uh, seven deacons. which is, It doesn't call them deacons, but that's essentially what they are. And later... Paul, after he gets saved and begins writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, would describe some of the qualities and characteristics of deacons as they help undergird the ministry in the church. Here at Plum Creek, we have elders and we have deacons in fulfillment of uh, the biblical model. Uh, but two of these that are mentioned here are what we've talked about before uh, I call walk-ons. It's where a person is mentioned in passing who later in Luke's narrative becomes a central part of the discussion. It's called a walk-on, right? It's like when you see when you're watching a movie and you see a big high-dollar actor sort of come into a scene, sort of in the background, and doesn't have a big role. But you're going, and it's early on in the movie, and you're going, well, clearly that person's going to become a big part of this plot because they wouldn't pay the high dollars to have this person just be sitting at a counter behind the camera, you know, in behind the scenes. So this is one of those walk-ons, and we see that with Stephen, who in the next chapter gets martyred. And takes up the whole chapter. And we also see it with Philip is mentioned as one of the early deacons. Who later is the one who preaches to the uh, eunuch uh, from Ethiopia. And he says, so they said, in verse 6, they set them before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So we see another progress report. Similar language to the one in verse 1. But now it's they're multiplying greatly. Because again, they had more people to kind of help take on some uh, tasks and responsibilities within the church. And notice it says, And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And that phrase, obedient to the faith, is what got my mind thinking about unbelief, because as we read through the rest of it and get to the end of chapter 7, we see some people that weren't obedient to the faith. So you don't have to do good works to be saved, but there is one condition. You've got to believe the gospel. And Paul would later talk about obeying the truth of the gospel. Well, here uh, we see 
Luke characterizing those who come to faith as being obedient, right? Spirit of God convicts them. You're a sinner. You need a Savior. You've got a sin problem, and you're under a steep penalty. But you can have that remedied if you'll simply trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And then uh, we see, so that's the establishment of the deacons. And we saw the walk-ons there with Stephen and, uh, and also uh, Saul. Actually, that's not correct. I should have, that's a typo. It should say Stephen and Philip. Uh, Saul is also a walk-on that we're going to see uh, at the end of chapter 7. So maybe that's why I put it in there or at the beginning of chapter 8. So anyway, it's all kind of flowing together in my mind as we read through this narrative. But then, uh, let's read on. It says in verse 8, Stephen, full of faith and power, he's one of the deacons they just picked, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some uh, from the, what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, and it lists kind of the geographic regions where they're from, disputing with Stephen. The synagogue of the freedmen, there were different synagogues in and around Jerusalem at that time. In fact, we read in the Jewish Talmud that there were 390 different synagogues before Rome destroyed the city in 70 AD. And so like in a similar way to local Christian churches today, in the Jewish culture, culture each synagogue tended to attract people of similar backgrounds and preferences and geographic regions. And so that's what he's talking about. This was a particular uh, uh, synagogue. Evidently, the, the members or families that were participating in that synagogue had all experienced some kind of liberation from slavery, and that's why they were called the synagogue of the freedmen. Um, and so, you know, he goes on and, and, and says that these, some from that Jewish synagogue, these were unbelievers, not Christians, uh, they were disputing with Stephen. They didn't like the things that he was saying. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke, in verse 10. In other words, they couldn't, couldn't uh, uh, respond effectively to it. They had no answer for it, if you will. Then they secretly induced men to say, so here we see a conspiracy forming, uh, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now, did Stephen do that? Of course not, right? He was speaking the same message the prophets of old had spoken. In fact, you can read his entire sermon in chapter 7 as he goes on and elaborates later. So they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses. So this was quite a conspiracy, right? I mean, they were paying off witnesses, paying off juries, if you will. Um, and this man does not speak cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs with Moses, which Moses delivered to us. By the way, you ought to underline that word uh, changed, because <laughs> that's typically at the root of a lot of reactions and persecution. People just don't like change. And Jesus came and brought change. That's what he brought. He said, look, you know, I'm coming to fulfill the law. And it's not about dotting your I's and crossing your T's and keeping the 613 laws. It's about trusting in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these Jewish leaders were quite comfortable with the way things had become and their hierarchy and their self-righteousness. And so that's what really got their goat, so to speak. And it says in verse 15, All who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. In other words, the Lord 
spoke through, the Spirit of God spoke through Stephen, and they could tell there was something unique about this man. So we see Stephen is falsely accused, and then in chapter 7, and we're not going to read it, but he preaches this powerful sermon that basically traces the history of Israel all the way from Abraham and Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 through Moses, through or before that through Jacob and uh, uh, Joseph and, and through Moses and all the way up to the present day. And how do you think that went over with these unbelieving Jewish leaders? Well, they weren't too happy about it. And so we see last week the first example of persecution in the church. And we drew some principles from that. This week we see the first example of martyrdom in the church as they stone Stephen uh, to death. And so we're going to get to the climax of that sermon at the end of chapter 7 as our focal passage and kind of take a, a look at a, what unbelief looks like in its raw, worst, most extreme uh, case. I think the Jewish leaders are the quintessential example of unbelief. Uh, and Stephen's characterization of them here in verses 51 to 53 is spot on. So the first thing I think when I think of unbelief from this example anyway is that unbelief is inflexible. At the root of unbelief is prideful self-confidence. I don't need any help because I'm fine the way I am. Why should I change? And so the first thing anyone has to understand before they can believe the gospel is that they've got a problem. They are a sinner. And that sin comes with a steep penalty. If you don't think you're in need of help, then you're not going to reach out for the Savior, right? If you don't know you're drowning, you're not going to grab for the life preserver. You've got to recognize you're a sinner. And so unbelief is inflexible. If you look at verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Let's focus on that word stiff-necked. It's one word in Greek, and it's, it's basically uh, translated here in English the same way it would be just taking the words in their raw literalness. Uh, but it's the word that means stubborn, unyielding, and inflexible. And it's a compound word from sclero, meaning hard, you know, you're familiar with sclerosis, right? It's a hardening of the tissue. It's where that word comes from, from the Greek word sclero. And then trachalos, trachalos, meaning neck, or literally that uh, tube that brings air down through the neck to the lungs. So, you know, you're familiar with a, a tracheotomy, for example. It's when you put a hole in your, in your trachea, your throat. So, uh, stubborn, unyielding, inflexible. It's literally hard-necked or stiff-necked as it's translated in uh, verse 51. Now where does that metaphor come from? In the ancient Greek world it, it was an agricultural metaphor. When an ox or a horse would refuse to go it would stiffen its neck and, and, and just dig in. And so to be hard or stiff-necked meant Stubborn disobedience. Obstinance was the idea. It's the same word that, the same idea that the, we see in the ancient Near East for the Jewish people 700 years before Christ when Isaiah refers to them at that time as stubborn-hearted. 
You know, you're far from righteousness. What do you think Isaiah meant there when he said far from righteousness? He wasn't commenting on their moral, practical, outward behavior. He was commenting on their heart. And they were not positionally righteous. They had not received the imputed righteousness that comes, like Abraham did, by faith. Abraham believed God and was declared what? Righteous, Genesis 15, 6. And so the Jewish people have always struggled, like all human beings, with this notion that they can somehow achieve this right position with God without faith, just by working hard or doing more. And, and here Isaiah characterizes them as stubborn-hearted and far from righteousness. Far from righteousness. In uh, Psalm 81, a psalm of Asaph here talking about Israel, it says, So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart. What does he mean there? See, God will never force somebody to believe. See, Calvinists are, have got this absolutely wrong, with all due respect to some of my Calvinist friends, and I've taught this for years. And uh, They believe that grace is irresistible, that only the elect will be saved, and if you're elect, you couldn't resist the gospel if you wanted to. You're going to be forced to believe. And by the way, if you're not elect, you couldn't believe the gospel if you wanted to. You're just doomed to hell. No chance. That's Calvinism. It's the doctrine of irresistible grace. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. And I've dealt with that elsewhere in a lot of in a little greater detail, uh, both in videos and in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. But we see examples throughout Scripture of people resisting the gospel and others believing the gospel. And God, the, the universal call to believe the gospel is a bona fide offer. He wouldn't make an offer to believe the gospel if it weren't possible for you to do it. So anyone in this room, anyone on earth can believe the gospel if they'll simply trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Uh, so the choice is yours. Do you want to walk in your own counsel and walk according to your own stubborn heart? Well, God will let you. He's drawing all men to Him, but He's not dragging you. He's not going to force you. Uh, but why would you want to do that? Why not trust the Creator of the universe and his plan to redeem mankind. I mean, change is hard. And I think unbelief is, is in many ways a matter of inflexibility. People just don't like change. Mark Twain said the only one who likes change is a wet baby, right? You've heard me say that before. One of my favorite Twain quotes. But, um, but not only is, is uh, unbelief inflexible, it's also insensitive. Many people refuse to believe the gospel because they're too intellectual. You know, they, they simply cannot... Let their hearts go there. Notice what Stephen says, continuing here at the very end of his sermon, as he's just sort of coming to a, a climax here at the very end, and it leads to his stoning. That's, that's how they reacted. But he calls them uncircumcised of heart. I mean, now if you know anything about Jewish culture, this is the worst insult you could give a Jew. <laughs> to call a Jew uncircumcised in any sort of metaphor is pretty uh, insulting to them. But what he meant is, look, the heart is the seat of the mind, will, and emotions. And they, they were insensitive to the Spirit's voice. They may have outwardly done all the right things. They said the right prayers. They went to the right meetings. They gave the right sacrifices. They wore the right clothes. But in their heart, it was far from them. It's the same thing that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he said... You, know, you have said that you shouldn't murder. You've heard it said that thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, have you ever hated? 
You've heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, have you ever lusted? He's trying to get the Jewish leaders to look beyond their outward facade and look at the heart. And what he was saying is that if you've hated, you've sinned. You know, James, the Lord's brother, who wrote most likely the first book of the New Testament chronologically in the mid to late 40s A.D., just 10 years after the church was founded, and who was, parallels many of the same truths that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. It's fascinating if you go back and read James and look at the you know, redundancy between Jesus' sermon and the Sermon on the Mount and James, which tells us that James was most likely there on the hillside that day. Now, James didn't believe the gospel till after the resurrection. None of Jesus' family did, but he heard it. And uh, James reminds us that if you keep the whole law, but yet stumble in the smallest part, you're guilty of all. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell the Jews uh, in, the first, in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what Stephen is trying to tell them here in the early days of the church, that their heart was far from him. It's not what you do that matters. It's what's in your heart, so to speak. And so you need a heart transplant, speaking metaphorically. And how do you get that? By faith alone, in Christ alone. So they were insensitive to the Spirit's voice. Their heart was so hard that they, the Holy Spirit just couldn't break through. I mean, they could argue the law. They were very intellectual and academic. But when the Spirit came knocking, they weren't sensitive enough to respond to Him. Remember, Jesus had told the disciples in the upper room that when He, that's the Holy Spirit, has come after Christ's ascension to the right hand of the throne of God, He, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world of sin. And uh, these people were too insensitive to hear it, and it led to their unbelief. Jesus Himself had said, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to Myself. And He was drawing them but they were too insensitive to listen. So my personal application here in Strong Challenge is, you know, stop trying to figure it all out. I think the reason some people don't believe the gospel is they're just not intuitive. They're too intellectual. Stop trying to figure it all out and respond to that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit inside you. By the way, that's good advice for the believer, too. Mm-hmm. You know, not just the unbeliever, right? Another picture of unbelief is it's inattentive. Sometimes people are so busy with other distractions that they cannot hear or recognize the voice of the Spirit calling them to salvation. They're just not paying attention. Because notice he says they were not only uncircumcised in heart, but in their ears. In their ears. See, our ears can be uh, inattentive to what the Lord's trying to do, especially unbelievers. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes people are just so busy with other distractions that they cannot hear or recognize the voice of the Spirit when it's calling. Unbelievers can be very busy. And uh, we see this played out in several different parables and metaphors that Jesus himself used. You know, the, the uh, ones that were invited, uh, but they were too busy, you know, and just couldn't come to the banquet. Uh, I think that's true of a lot of believers today. They just don't think about spiritual matters that much. And so when they're confronted with the gospel, maybe it's a song on the radio, maybe it's a Christian sharing the gospel with them or handing them a track, or maybe they are channel surfing on Sirius XM and they come across a good Bible teaching preacher, although the odds of that happening on Sirius XM are pretty slim. But let's assume for the sake of the illustration that they hear one that's actually preaching a clear gospel. Um, but they kind of quickly dismiss it. Too busy. I got an appointment. I got someplace to be. They're too inattentive. Too inattentive. Uh, not paying attention. Going back to the Old Testament, we see the prophet Zechariah making the same accusation. Now, he prophesied in 520 B.C., so about 500 years 
or so before Christ, maybe 550 years before Christ's ministry actually began. And he was a prophet and a priest like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And he was telling the Jewish uh, leaders here, uh, you know, that they had stopped their ears. By the way, Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, remember that passage in Matthew 23 where he's just, this issues the scathing rebuke of the Jewish leaders in the first century just before he preaches the Olivet Discourse in 24 and 25 and just before he's crucified on uh, Friday and laid in the tomb. But in that famous chapter in chapter 23 where he calls them whitewashed tombs and vipers, you know, all those loving things that, that Jesus said that people forget about, right? Uh, he tells them that they that their leaders back in, in Zechariah's day murdered Zechariah between the temple and the altar. So this is the Zechariah we're talking about here, another martyr like Stephen. And uh, he, he reminds uh, the people in his day that uh, they had turned a deaf ear to God's voice. They didn't pay attention. To stop your ears is kind of a metaphor. It's, it, we might liken it today to you know, a child sticking its fingers in its his fingers in his ears and saying, "La la 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 la, I can't hear you." You know, that's that's the the word picture there. And by the way, the Jews in Stephen's day did the same exact thing. We see that in verse fifty-seven. Uh, I don't have that on the screen, but he says the same thing. They stopped their ears. They're basically saying, "I don't want to hear this. I can't hear you." And this is why Jesus, again and again throughout his ministry said things like, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, pay attention. You know, there's no hoops that you have to jump through. It's not salvation. is isn't a contractual agreement where you've got to sign away the farm and then he lets you into heaven. Salvation is very simple. It's so simple a child can understand it. The problem is people aren't listening. And so again and again, we see these admonitions, both during Jesus' day and in the early days of the church, to listen to him. Remember when on the Mount of uh, transfiguration in Matthew 17, God speaks from heaven and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He said the same thing, by the way, at Jesus' baptism. But here in the Mount of Transfiguration, God adds two words. It's actually one word in Greek. Hear him. Hear him. And that's why Paul would later say in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So to be saved, you've got to hear the gospel and some people are just too inattentive, and that's another picture of an unbelief. Number four is unbelief is indecisive. When the Spirit does break through sometimes, some Jews were paralyzed with indecisiveness. They simply could not make a decision to abandon their faith in their own goodness and trust in the Messiah alone. And I think the same thing is true today. Notice he, said, he goes on to say, you resist the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus is drawing the lost to himself, but he will never force them to believe. You must choose to believe the good news. And some people are just waffling. I don't know. Should I believe it? Should I not? They're just stuck in limbo. Now, there are many examples in Scripture of people refusing to believe the gospel. Going back to that same passage I referenced a minute ago in Matthew 23, <clears throat> Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You just wouldn't do it. Indecisive. Jesus himself said in John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
in chapter 5, he says, you were not willing to come to me that you might have life. Again, speaking to the unbelieving Jews in his day. It's your choice is the point. Uh, nobody can make that choice for you. I can't give you eternal life. I can't see to it that you have eternal life, nor can you do that for me. But I know I have eternal life because Jesus promised if I believe in him, I have eternal life. And more than 160 times the New Testament tells me that if I believe in Jesus, I'll have eternal life. I've done what the Bible tells me to do, and I know I'm going to have eternal life. In fact, 1 John 5.13 says, These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. We don't have to wait till we die to find out. We don't have to wonder and question, Boy, I hope when I get there I've done enough. No, it's not about what you do. It's have you believed the gospel? Are you a child of God by faith alone in Christ alone? It's your choice. See, love always works persuasively, but never coercively. Love always works persuasively and never coercively. And unfortunately, Calvinists teach that God forces you to come. You can't reject the gospel. It's irresistible. And if you're not elect, forget it. He's not calling you anyway. Jesus didn't die for you. He only died for the elect, right? But forced love is not love at all. It's hate. Ask yourself this question. How can a free choice be forced? Right? Did God force Eve to eat the apple? Of course not. It was his, he gave him a choice. He gave him a warning. He said, don't eat from that tree. I love you so much. I don't want you to die. If you eat from it, you're going to die. We had the choice. And we went over and took a great big bite. Free choice and compulsion are mutually exclusive. The verse that I mentioned in our first hour, Romans 3.24, Paul says we are justified freely by his grace. And in Revelation 22.17, we read, Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Whoever desires, not whoever's elect, but whoever desires. You know, King Agrippa, during uh, Paul's day later on in the book of Acts, uh, when Paul is under trial, is a great example of an indecisive person who rejected Christ when confronted with the good news about eternal life. Remember what King Agrippa said to Paul? You almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. I think that's where a lot of people are, and they need to make up their mind. See, boy, time is short. First of all, James reminds us that life is like a vapor that's here one second and gone. You just never know. I sent copies of my new book to several uh, donors through the years uh, for Not By Works Ministries, and one uh, gentleman, I'll just mention his first name, Steve, uh, Never met him, but we've had multiple conversations. Uh, he was a consultant and often traveled. And, and during his drives, he would call me from his rental car with questions. And we had some great invigorating discussions. And a couple of different times, he gave a donation to our ministry. And so I sent him a, a copy of our book with a letter uh, in it. Uh, and uh, I got an email this week from his wife. And she said, hey, JB, I've never met you Thank you for the book. I don't know if you heard, but Steve was killed in a car accident January 26th. No idea. Hadn't talked to him in a while. So you just don't know. But not only that, not only is life but a vapor, look around you at the signs of the times. I mean, the rapture could happen at any moment. <clears throat> we see the stage being set for the return of Christ in the end times. And so <clears throat> make up your mind, you know. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, Today's the day. Uh, and I think indecisiveness is a picture of unbelief. And then finally, unbelief is also inconsistent. And this is what James really is trying to explain to these Jewish leaders. <clears throat> Sometimes 
the Jews acted on God's word, but oftentimes they did not. So it's, it's really inconsistent. And we believe some things about God. We believe the sun's going to rise. We believe certain things, but we don't believe the thing that matters the most. He goes on in verse 53 saying, You who have received the law by the direction of angels, talking about Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai, and have not kept it. In other words, the very laws that the Jews insisted would give them eternal life if they simply kept them, they weren't really even keeping those laws. I mean, that's the whole point of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as I said a moment ago, uh, and, and James's reiteration of it, is that, you know, if you want to hang your hat on keeping the law, you better keep every single jot and tittle. You remember Jesus' discussion with the rich young ruler? Uh, when he said, all these laws I've kept from my youth. And so Jesus, to make a point, points out one law, the law of benevolence and helping others, that he hadn't kept. And he says, okay, let's see if you really have kept all the laws. Uh, why don't you sell your belongings and give it to the poor? And the guy went away sad, right? Because he recognized he hadn't kept them all. So uh, Stephen is saying here that these Jews were inconsistent. They weren't keeping the whole law. So the very thing that they're counting on to get them into the kingdom... They were going to fall short. So what's their standard? Uh, later on in, in the book of Acts, Peter would remind us that all the prophets of old pointed to Christ. This is in his sermon to Cornelius in his household in chapter 10. To him, Jesus, all the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive the remission of sins. Isaiah the prophet said faith is the only way to be saved paul quotes isaiah in romans 10 whoever believes on him will not be put to shame abraham serves as the example of that as i mentioned earlier <clears throat> he believed in the lord and was credited with righteousness <clears throat> so unbelief is inconsistent because it's contrary to what you know in your heart you know jesus is the only way but you're not willing to trust him to forgive you and make you righteous so there's a certain hypocrisy in unbelief, too. So there it is, just my sort of drawing some applications from that very end of Stephen's sermon when he says, you know, you uncircumcised of heart, stiff-necked people, and then, you know, they remained in unbelief and picked up stones and, and uh, killed them. In fact, we, we read a very poignant thing at the very end. Verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, as I referenced, and ran at him with one accord. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So there's the reference I was looking for earlier. So Saul is walking on here to the stage. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. By chapter 9, he's going to meet the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then he becomes not a persecutor and murderer of Christians, but the greatest missionary of all time. And, um, and then they, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, a, a euphemism there for died. So uh, Jesus said, therefore, I say to you, if you do not believe I am he, you will die in your sins. It's, it's a matter of belief. It's a matter of belief. So what's the takeaway? Well, I would say the takeaway, uh, just a couple of verses that give us that direct exhortation. Number one, don't harden your hearts. The writer of Hebrews uh, told the Jews in, uh, that he was writing to that very thing. Uh, he was talking mostly to believing Jews, but it's just as possible for 
believers to harden their hearts in a matter of sanctification. It can't change whether we go to heaven or not, but a lot of these principles that we're talking about here about being sensitive to the Holy Spirit's voice and trusting God, not for salvation in our case, but for daily provision, we, we can apply them to believers as well. And then Paul, of course, said today is the day of salvation. Today. So the takeaway is simply to believe. To believe. And uh, if you've already trusted Christ and you're talking with others about the gospel, just recognize that some of these characteristics of unbelief and begin to you know, point them out to them and encourage them to overcome some of these objections that they have, remembering, of course, that it's the Spirit of God that's going to do the saving. We can't argue people into the faith, but we can sure, surely point out some of their inconsistencies. So let's bow together as we pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, example, even though it's tough to read about what happened to Stephen and to see how the persecution was intensifying already in the early days of the church. It's also helpful to see just a portrait of what unbelief looks like. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that has not believed the gospel, that this, these very words of Scripture today would really uh, pierce their heart and convict them and uh, draw them all the way to you in simple childlike faith. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go.